1: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in Genocide Studies. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Ben Lieberman. Long-time listeners of the show have probably read, or at least heard of, his book Terrible Fate, Ethnic Cleansing in the history, uh, in, excuse Me, in the Making of Modern Europe. In the past few years, Lieberman's been somewhat quiet, and all of a sudden last year it became apparent why, as he published not just one, but two books, each of which in its own way engages the history of mass violence to understand broader trends in the history of Europe and the world. The first, titled Remaking Identities, God, Nation, and Race in World History, published by Roman and Littlefield, looks at the creation and destruction of identities in a variety of societies over time. The second is a textbook titled The Holocaust and Genocides in Europe, published by Bloomsbury Press. The two books are naturally different from each other, but both are excellent and both share connections in their attention to broader themes of regional and world history. I'm looking forward to talking with Ben about each of them. And so with that, Ben, thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So why don't we start out, Ben, by giving you a little, uh, by giving you a chance to talk a little bit about how you became an academic and and why you became one, specializing in the history of mass violence.
0: In terms of becoming an academic, I was actually at one time sort of torn between being a geologist or or an historian, but it seemed like <laughs> those were two pretty likely career paths for myself, and. Uh, my brother is is a is a professor too, so I think there's probably some some family uh, tendency there. And in terms of genocide, I my first uh, book and my dissertation focused on the Weimar Republic, and then it was really I think the events that were taking place at the time that I was in graduate school and uh, starting to teach the, the breakup of uh, the, the the Soviet Union in the early 90s, the breakup of Yugoslavia, and just like everyone else, witnessing what was happening at the time, that caused me to become increasingly interested in, in ethnic cleansing. And that was really my, my starting point. I also became increasingly fascinated in genocide more broadly, in particular when I started to teach the Holocaust and then started to think about other genocides. And I became quite fascinated by the Armenian genocide, especially because of the first few things that I read, I think, uh, misled me. So when I was teaching a class... Before I went to Fisherburg I mean, many, many years ago on, on, on the 20th century and the First World War, I briefly alluded to uh, the Armenian Genocide in some in some fashion, which I think, after the fact, was extremely inaccurate. And I did so by reading some a book by a well-known expert, uh, Bernard Lewis, and just sort of thinking, mm-hmm. okay, he, he knows what he's talking about, so that's probably what happened. And then once I started to look at some of the primary sources, I just became... Uh, Fascinated, and that, that was another entry point for me into looking at genocide. Huh.
1: I'm I'm intrigued, and I want to go back just a moment. You said geology and history, right? Yes. Okay, so so I started out actually as an astrophysics major, and I know why I I turned to what I really loved, and the answer is differential equations, um, which marked the end of a long slide in my grades
0: right. from calculus. Uh, why did you decide on history as opposed to geology? I was always taking lots of history, so I was always pursuing both. And I would, would kind of go back and forth, uh, you know, from one month to the next. I, I always did love history. That was one part of it. And the other part was probably something, a little bit of to your experience. It wasn't, it wasn't differential equations, but the kind of geology I liked the best was the absolute, uh, you know, most theoretical mathematical. Mm. And it, it probably wasn't my... my 100% strongest suit, I and mean, I wasn't terrible at it, but it wasn't the thing I was best at. And then sort of more nuts and bolts, bread and butter geology, I was I was much less interested in.
1: So let's let's turn to the books. Uh, and I'm wondering
0: um, why you decided to write
1: re- the, the book, Remaking Identities?
0: It was an outgrowth of, at, at the start, of some of the questions I became interested in looking at ethnic cleansing in Europe. And Terrible Fate goes beyond Europe and looks at at areas of Asia that are adjacent to Europe and are really, of course, affected by European history. And I became increasingly interested in in how ethnic cleansing took place in other parts of the world more broadly and how ethnic cleansing and genocide were not the only means to a particular end, which was to remake in an extremely radical way the, the map of human groups and so that was the starting point to try to look beyond Europe, uh, look beyond what I'd already studied. And I've, I've always had a tendency to sort of move into different fields, which kind of goes back to my early mm-hmm. um, switching back and forth between geology and history. And I think when I was in graduate school, I didn't quite realize that that was true about myself. And so I, I, wasn't, I also studied early modern English history and African history for, for that matter. So I've always been, been a generalist in some way. And I just wanted to know at, at, the, at the start, what were the ways in which identity was forcibly remade made elsewhere? What were the other methods and how were the experiences different or similar to those that I've been looking at in terrible fates? So that was the beginning.
1: And I have to say, I, I picked up your book. And one of the great things about our profession is that we can uh, sit on the couch with a bowl of popcorn and a book and say, it's working. Uh, and I sat down and I, I looked at it and Almost immediately, you really caught my attention by talking about the way in which violence and especially mass violence has been used not just to destroy identities and to create them. And that seems in, in some ways at the core of the book. So, you yes. can, can, would you talk a little bit about what kind of identities you mean and what you mean when you say that violence can be used to create as well as destroy?
0: We, we, when we think of genocide, we think of a crime because, of course, genocide is defined today as a crime. Mm-hmm. And that's accurate, but it also means that genocide studies can often seem like a collection of uh, just a bunch of horrible crimes committed at different times in different places, right? And the question then is what's really linking these things together? So would you, would someone write a book about murder in which the book was a, a sort of a series of horrible murders? I don't know. So what I really was curious about was what actually is genocide beyond, I mean, it is a crime. What is it beyond a crime? What is it beyond an outcome? And genocide is, is again, one way to remake identities probably Mm -hmm. the most radical. So that was my again, one starting point. And a lot of when it comes to genocide, of course, there are a few figures who are so notorious that almost anyone would say that they're evil or terrible in some kind of Pretty quick fashion, but once you move beyond the, that small list, there's a whole lot of people who can be either seen as heroes or villains by different groups. Uh, for example, I mean, the, uh, the, the recent uh, controversy of over Ukraine, Stefan Bandera yeah. mm-hmm. was this uh, leader of the Organization of uh, Ukrainian Nationalists OUN. I think that's the, the right uh, name for the organization, but. Recently, the the Russian government has been accusing Ukrainians of being fascists because they're alleged to be sympathizers of Bandera. And In fact, it seems that some Ukrainians have used some of the old symbols, much as some Croatians have used some some old symbols from the, uh, the Chetniks in World War II. And there has been some research on this, so Bandera could be seen by some people as an exponent of ethnic cleansing or by by some as a, as a hero of the nation. And, of course, our, our natural tendency is to try to figure out who's right and who's wrong. But the interesting thing is that in some cases it could be both, right? So someone could use violence to, from, from one perspective, to create some kind of pure or national or racial or religious community. And from the perspective of those who are, who are suffering the violence, you know, could be uh, someone who's supporting up cleansing or, or something even worse. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that that's quite a common phenomenon, and it, it goes back you know, quite a long way into the past. It, it takes form in religion as well. If you look at the histories of the lives of saints from the Middle Ages, some of the saints who are revered for uh, preaching Christianity or, or baptizing many people also in the saints' lives are very direct are described as destroying things uh, basically vandalizing and that 's not that 's not killing right but they 're using in that case destruction violence to try to erase an unwanted identity to try to anchor a new identity so there 's this great close connection between the two phenomena and a few a few historians and researchers have have in recent years begun to touch on this, and this was actually a, a big theme in Raphael Lemkin's writing, and I think that mm-hmm. probably the rediscovery of, of Lemkin's actual writing is uh, rekindling interest in this connection. Because Lemkin said that genocide was more than just a single uh, process, right? That it had different components to erase uh, some kind of pattern and then to imprint another one upon it, upon that uh, place or group. Yeah, and, and you
1: point out in the book that Lemkin's understanding of genocide is not the same as the def- legal definition that's in the um, UN Convention. And I'm wondering what, what you would say about what kind of advantages and disadvantages do we get from looking backwards and, and looking at the word or the label genocide and, and kind of evaluating or testing past cases of violence against that label?
0: It can be extremely useful, or it can be almost an arbitrary exercise. So sometimes it almost seems as if collections of of essays on genocide or uh, studies of genocide begin by finding a definition and then trying to figure out, okay, which cases in the past fit this definition, that's the sample, and then trying to draw similarities between those different cases when what they're really looking at then is simply the outcome. And Mark Levine points out the problem with this Mm -hmm. uh, historian, Mark Levine, which is that if that's the approach, it's very easy to discard uh, many violent acts in the past, which don't quite, for whatever reason, meet the definition, but which may actually share a lot of similarity with the events that are being studied. So it can be sometimes random exercise that I don't think is, is all that useful historically. In terms of the law, and I think that it is necessary to have some legal definition for very practical purposes, perpetrators of genocide should be investigated, prosecuted, tried if possible. So I, I do think it's entirely appropriate that courts have some working definition, although of course people can debate endlessly what that exact definition should be. When it comes to looking at the past, though, I think we're trying to understand Broader questions that may not be legal questions, right? No one's going to bring some kind of lawsuit against uh, Christian saints, right, or against <laughs> Cortez. Uh, but in that case, the genocide is useful as a way to try to figure out how the map of the world that we that we now live with what was made. Uh, genocide is not the only technique used to make the map, but certainly one of them. And I think it's also good to take a broad approach because oftentimes. We find out that campaigns to remake the maps were related to genocide, but were not exactly genocide. And again, if you just start with genocide alone and leave all those other cases, I think we end up with a very patchy, incomplete picture of history.
1: You start the book then with a couple chapters that look at the expansion of Islam uh, in the Middle East and, and, and Africa, uh, and, and then in Christianity in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you 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 talk about it seems these fit together fairly well as, t- as as case studies of of expansion and uh, of a religious group which has a, a particularly monotheistic group which has some kind of interest in converting uh, the people that in 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 the new territories in which it's expanding into uh, but not necessarily the same amount of interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you 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 also use the word holy war. With both of them, so I'm wondering if you could say something about how these two processes of expansion were similar and different.
0: They're similar in that in both cases there are there were, there were ardent supporters of monotheistic identity who wanted to implant that identity in a particular regions. So there's no doubt. I mean, for all the debate about history of Islam, and the amazing thing, of course, for a modernist, and I began as a modernist, is how little information Mm -hmm. there actually is. So I'm sure that many, many scholars of of, uh, early Islamic history could say to someone like me, you know, you're an outsider, but what amazes me about their sometimes very learned books is how little they they work with, right, compared to the amount of material (laughs) that a modern historian would work with. But in any case, it, it does seem clear that the... Early uh, believers, as the historian Fred Donner would would call them, or or Muslims, did want to really strengthen and plant very ardent, strong monotheism in a a broad region. The uh, Christians in medieval Europe, whether they were members of the church, uh, clerics, or uh, nobles or monarchs allied with the church, I think also wanted to implant religion in particular areas. Differences, I think, are are in the degree to which they were willing to accommodate uh, non-believers in in their midst. And I know there's a gigantic debate about holy war in the case of Islam, which, of Mm -hmm. course, is very much tied up with reactions to 9-11. And so it is is true that non-Muslim communities survived in the Islamic world for, you know, up until now, of course, right, in in many cases. But at the same time, the, the early Islamic... Raids or believers' raids were, were not just raids, right? These were, these were people who meant to stay where they, where they had gone. So if religion had been irrelevant, it's hard to imagine why they wouldn't have just taken some loot, gone back to where they, you know, originally <laughs> lived, because that's the kind of thing that semi nomadic raiders did all the time. And it's also hard to imagine that they would have bothered to build uh, large ceremonial uh, mosques. And what's interesting is that there's so little direct information on the actual response, right, of, uh, of people, but the little glimpses don't seem to show people are totally happy. So I would certainly accept that early Islam was comparatively ecumenical in accepting other faiths, at least of, of other uh, peoples of the book, but I don't think that the early Muslims were indifferent to religion. And so there's these amazing passages from the uh, the martyrs of Cordoba from Spain, and they really seem quite uh, frustrated at, at what's happening. They seem to be uh, quite discontent at the shift in religion. So the, the few glimpses that we have show people who don't always seem happy, and so I think there's a combination of, yes, some acceptance of difference, but also of continuing pressure. In the case of medieval Europe, it's, it's far more direct. The, uh, in, in quite a few cases, saints, again, did... According to the saints' lives, destroy uh, so-called uh, pagan shrines. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some cases, there was incredible violence, especially when there was resistance to Christianity. So, for example, Charlemagne's Saxon wars uh, showed us incredible violence. There was lots of violence used then, as uh, in against the Vends further to the east, and especially in in Baltic wars, and uh, the, the in cases when pagans really did resist, uh, at times the level of violence does sound kind of genocidal. So if everything else failed, it does seem that slaughter was justified as, as the ultimate response to resistance. And that would be the case in, in the northeast of Europe. So some of those accounts of, of violence in northeast Europe do sound quite genocidal, although the term is not often applied to medieval Europe.
1: And and you point out in these chapters the importance of geography, Mm -hmm. in particular the idea of sacred objects and sacred spaces. What do you you mean by those, and and how did they play a role in this expansion?
0: Oh, they're very important. And again, genocide and ethnic cleansing are not the only ways to try to implant an identity or, or, Mm -hmm. or erase an unwanted alternative. So over and over again, there are contests for space, and those take place through knocking down or erecting various religious symbols. Um, there are all kinds of stories about the Kaaba, which is you know quite fascinating in itself, and the Kaaba is, is a great example of remaking a religious space in that the Kaaba predates Islam, right? So it's, uh, and in the end that the, the, the... And, interesting and being, just
1: remind us, for those of us who don't remember, the uh, Kaaba is...
0: The black stone in, uh, in Mecca, And so Mm -hmm. pilgrims who go on the Hajj circle around it, basically, or circle around the building in which it's, it's, I think it's in the corner of of a building, right, some sort of small part of the building, but they circle around it. But the interesting thing is that it actually predates Islam. So the account is that it was previously a a monotheistic shrine or, or symbol, going back to the Prophet Abraham, and then that Muhammad and the supporters kind of return it to its original past, right? So what's happening there is a contest over space, a contest over religious symbols, and a use of those symbols to anchor monotheism in a particular landscape. And in the case of medieval medieval Europe, there there are many, many cases. Uh, Boniface, for example, uh, after he's, after he's, he's killed, um, his, I mean, the bones of saints become sacred objects, and those then can also be, be, be used to anchor religion into particular uh, places. Uh, so, And for their part, some of the missionaries also are described as frequently, destroying unwanted objects. Trees are a great example of fighting over religious space. So in many parts of Europe, trees were described as sacred, and so there are various famous stories of missionaries' Cutting down trees, and quite interestingly, very occasionally it seems like they were nervous about doing so, so that mm-hmm. there would be cases where it seems like maybe they're accommodating a little bit of a uh, uh, deviation you know so when when mm-hmm. is it necessary to cut down a sacred tree, and when is it okay to uh leave a sacred tree up would be a, a question that would confront uh medieval missionaries
1: so. How successful are these societies in actually spreading their religious ideas?
0: It varies a, g- a great deal, but I think ultimately they're they're pretty successful if one looks at the before and after comparison. Mm-hmm. So historians today, I think, often love to stress resistance, survival, and will often write a book in which basic, the basic argument is that some particular group wanted to uh, spread some identity or force some change, and that uh, the people who were subject to that campaign resisted, survived, persisted, and, and accommodated and adapted. It's almost like a fill-in-the-blank argument sometimes, <laughs> which can be applied to almost any situation. So you could do that with uh, the spread of Islam and find people who accommodated or adapted, or one could perhaps a little harder do it with the spread of Christianity in medieval Europe, but the before-and-after change is, is really quite significant in both cases, uh, Yes, there were some Christian communities that did survive in the Islamic world, but there was certainly a, a major shift in, in religion. In the case of medieval Europe, uh, there are all kinds of uh, bits of evidence about folklore and this debate about whether or not folk practices are really survivals of paganism or not. But the before and after shift is really quite dramatic. So the Vens, for example, had one of the most powerful... know, so-called pagan faiths, and their uh, temple on the island of Rugen was knocked down just by crusaders, and the story goes that their idol was then cooked, I mean, the wood was used for cooking, and then the (sighs) victors put up raised churches on that island, and today it's it's just seen as completely expected, right, that the landscape is Christian, right? So in that case, the the ultimate success seems to be quite quite high in in bringing about change.
1: You turn then to the Spanish expansion into Latin America, mm-hmm. and you write that this marked the beginning of the end of a long period of of holy war. So so what did the Spanish want, and 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 how does this represent the beginning of a transition?
0: Well, they clearly want many things, and so many times these actors are acting for for varied motives. And sometimes they're actually squabbling with each other, which is quite fascinating. So just to go (laughs) back to the case of medieval Europe, in the case of expansion of Christians, Christian lords often fought, feuded, uh, vied for power. But the amazing thing is, even when they did so, they came to assume that they were going to fight, squabble, and vied for power within a Christian framework, right? So there wasn't some Christian lord, generally speaking, saying, hey, I'm going to let the pagans stay, right? Most of the time that the the assumption is the pagans are not going to stay. In the case of uh, Spanish expansion into the new world, clearly they have multiple motives. I mean, they want uh, gold and the Aztecs were, weren't not wrong when they described the Spanish as could have swollen with their, their greed, uh, Pizarro would not have gone through the lengths he did to get to South America if he hadn't been motivated by a search for treasure. So absolutely, they, they wish to acquire that. There are other motives as well, but I think once they decide that the, there's some point in converting the natives and there's some debate about that, it takes 10, 20 years to, to to proceed. But by the time of the conquest of Mexico, at least for Cortes and afterwards, it is pretty clear that the Spanish, they may wish to do all kinds of terrible things, but once they are victorious, they also do want to convert people. In the case of Cortez, he almost seems to be ahead of the curve, and his comrades almost, I think, do see him as almost reckless at times in Hmm. criticizing human sacrifice, and they almost, they suggest to him at times, you know, shut up until you've won. I think it's basically (laughs) the message, right? You know, don't cause more trouble until afterwards. So, The Spanish do want many things, but they do, in fact, wish to convert people. And what happens later, at least in most cases in in imperial expansion, is that linkage becomes decoupled. Mm -hmm. So, yes, there are missionaries in uh, English colonial possessions, uh, but by and large, there's not any kind of vast official push, right, for people to go around with sort of fill in the blank. Script saying, I will now submit to the King of England and to the Pope. Of course, they wouldn't say the Pope after the Reformation mm-hmm. anyway, right? Whereas when the Spanish go around the New World, they have this requirement, and the requirement refers both to political submission, but also to religious submission as well. So the two things are linked together. And, and that doesn't happen very much afterwards. Huh.
1: Um
0: there, there's more
1: to this, I should say, and I encourage everybody to, to get and read the book because it's a really wonderful treatment of this, and we just have time to skim the surface. Um, you move then to uh, settler, uh, with a little bit of a jump, to settler societies. Yes. And you have this beautiful sentence inserted in the middle of a later chapter where you kind of summarize, at least in my mind, the second half of the book kind of in one sentence. Uh, And this is not an advice to graduate students just to find and read that one sentence as you're preparing for comps. But I suppose it could be that. And you talk about um, settler societies in the United States forging new national myths, symbols, identities, and geographies by attacking and displacing indigenous peoples, whereas – later, nationalists called for and carried out violent campaigns to create and strengthen a nation. So how in the process of expanding and displacing indigenous people are, uh, particularly in the United States, although in the conclusion you, you, you broaden this treatment to other settler societies, how are they f- forming and shaping new
0: identities? I mean, that's like that, that question goes back in my life a long way, though I hadn't formulated until pretty recently. And that I grew up in eastern Connecticut in a landscape that had been Native American. That you know, the, as I was growing up, of course, the Native Americans in eastern Connecticut started to gain more influence through casinos, but that was not the case when I was first growing up, and we never really talked about about them. And I think in Massachusetts, pretty much the same thing is true. I mean, people talk about the, the pilgrims, but then they kind of skip forward to the American Revolution, which is quite convenient. Uh, settlers, again, had had multiple motives. Unlike nationalists, they, they really weren't usually beginning by trying intentionally to anchor some new identity. And so there's a great possibility of accommodation initially between grey settlers and natives. But in almost every single case in North America, that accommodation eventually breaks down and does lead to extremely violent conflict, and that violent conflict often focuses on identity. So even if a bunch of settlers begin with oftentimes economic motives, in the case of Massachusetts, for instance, which is you know where I'm, I'm speaking right now, mm-hmm. uh, by the 1670s, Accommodation with the majority of, of natives has broken down. They're, they're involved in King Philip's War, and King Philip's War, though it has many many causes, does in part become a war about identity and about what kind of people are going to dominate the future. And by severely restricting the Indian presence, displacing many natives, killing others, I mean there are still certainly surviving communities, but they're very much marginalized in terms of their their power. They help to create This new landscape and that continues in in various bursts and stages until you have you know the United States which uh, we have I mean there are still surviving native populations but by severely restricting their power settlers in effect created a a national landscape for the whole country which we think of as American right not not non-American Indian at least most of us think of it that way but without even consciously thinking about the, the past I think that process goes on in many places. What's very ironic, in my opinion, is the extent to which nobody really wants to talk about the obvious. I mean, it's obvious that this has happened. So in the past, the victorious, you know, glorious American narrative wouldn't have wanted to stress the role of of King Philip's war Mm -hmm. or the role of Indian removals or of any number of of other violent conflicts. But I think what's quite interesting is that from the other perspective – if you go to the uh, the, the museum in, in Washington D.C. that focuses on Native Americans, there's also very, very, very little focus on destruction of Indian cultures in that museum either. And I think it's because the it focus is on persistent survival and endurance. So neither narrative really has much place for the obvious, which is which is quite striking.
1: Another one of the the, the narratives that we tend to think about is this this idea that cultures somehow merge together, and you suggest um, and this is throughout your book, but i I was particularly struck with it in this this section that in fact, what often happens is is parallel identities or or dual realities. Can you talk about what you mean by that
0: Yes, so when one group invades or settles in another group 's territory. Typically, they, they both persist for some period of time. There's typically not a complete replacement immediately. And so scholars kind of have all kinds of terms and models to describe this. They talk about hybrid cultures, syncretism, uh, blending. Uh, sometimes they talk about accommodation, adaptation. And all, a lot of these metaphors either stress persistence nowadays to do with a group that supposedly has been uh, overpowered, right? They're still persisting, or uh, take some kind of biological metaphor and suggest some kind of blending as in the shape of a hybrid, right? Someone could have a hybrid, you know, fruit tree, right? And why not a hybrid culture? And I think this is, I won't call it entirely inaccurate, but I don't think it really captures the way people think or, or behave, which is that they can often hold more than one thought in their minds, right? So it's not necessarily the case that people blend or mix different cultures. They can really have two different cultures at the same time, and that's what the dual reality is. In a dual reality, people may adopt one thing f- from one culture, something else from another, but it's not as if they're ordering different meals off a menu and saying, you know, I'll have a mix of, of these dishes and create a hybrid cuisine, right? Uh, They also can live very much in in two worlds at the same time, and there are quite a few interesting cases of famous people who did that. So, uh, one famous case is someone who actually I think did pretty well in the end was uh, Quanah Parker, who was whose whose mother had actually been uh, taken captive in warfare on the Texas frontier, and then she uh, lived among the Comanche, and he uh, was a famous Comanche uh, leader ultimately defeated, he seemed to integrate pretty well into the United States. That's that's someone who kind of lived with uh, two different cultures. So those it, that can be a stable pattern, but the point I want to make is that's not always stable. So I think in today's historiography, the typical argument stresses stability of mixing, and the problem with the dual reality is it can be stable, but I argue it can also be extremely hmm. unstable, and that instability can emerge really quickly. And it can be unstable from two directions. So the group that, which discovers that there's still a dual reality uh, may at times react by trying to be even more radical and violent and erase the unwanted reality. So, for example, the Spanish periodically in Central America or Latin America will decide or learn that, wait a second, of the natives are still uh, holding to their traditional beliefs. And in that case, some of them moved, some of the Spanish uh, Christians move, Catholics move to extirpation. For their part, uh, natives in the situations don't always seem satisfied with what historians see as accommodation. They sometimes see the dual reality as untenable as pressure continues. And the evidence for this is, is quite interesting. It comes in the form of numerous uh, prophecies, uh, revitalization movements and sometimes rebellions. And these prophecies often take the form of promising to erase the settler society, th- sometimes through something which we might call magic, sometimes through ceremonies. And in some cases, it takes in the form of direct violence, as in the Pueblo rebellions or uh, some of the rebellions in, in Peru. So, I, what I would say is that dual realities are not, al- they're not always a matter of blending of different things and more. There can be different ideas or cultures existing kind of parallel to each other, and they can be both stable or highly unstable. And when they when, when they become unstable, it creates a lot of potential for ethnic cleansing or genocide at the extreme.
1: And that's maybe a good transition point to talk about nationalism, because you turn then to talk about the 20th century, mostly the 20th century, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and the conflicts that emerge about nationalism. So, so how did nationalists vary from some of the other societies you've, you've talked about in terms of the, the, the force and the logic and the methods of their attempt to, to create and destroy identities?
0: I mean, they use a lot of the same methods. So teaching, you know, persuasion, uh, trying to create landscapes through symbols, uh, objects. But I think they're, they're more interested in, in boundaries than some of the other previous groups in that national tended to want nation-states, which meant they wanted to have boundaries. So they're extremely ambitious, but then they also, ironically, limit their ambition. And I think this also leads nationalists to be especially prone to seeing treason. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that there's going to, be, if there's a sharp boundary to a nation, they're especially likely to then worry about the people living within those boundaries and whether or not they're loyal to that nation. And whereas a religion, in principle, could keep expanding, you know, most nations are not, in principle, going to keep expanding. So nationals usually know that there are many other nations, and if they want pure loyalty to one nation in an extremely tightly defined space, and they know for a fact that there are many other nations, it's not very surprising that they're going to see lots of traitors, and that does create potential for forced assimilation, repression, and again, at an extreme, ethnic cleansing or genocide.
1: Yeah, reading, reading about this, I was kind of repeatedly struck by this this question of whether the, this concern that, that, that is true in other time periods as well, but it's so pervasive in national, is about wondering whether people stay bought. How do you tell whether they've accept this, accepted this new identity or accepted this new accommodation, um, and that that being one of these flashpoints?
0: Well, you, you often can't, and again, that can make people even even more nervous and, and many yeah. historians have have recently stressed the idea that uh, nationalism was weak, right that many uh, ordinary people were fairly indifferent to nationalism uh, i don't think that would in itself affect the the likelihood that nationalists would would not adopt violent methods of anything if they if they feared that they were surrounded by significant in different communities, they might be likely to take even more radical action under some under some conditions.
1: So that's, that seems an appropriate time to, to switch gears and talk about the second book, the, the Holocaust and Genocide in Europe book. And I'm wondering if you could say something, um, aside from the obvious difference in material and focus, how was the process of conceptualizing and writing a textbook different from that of a monograph?
0: I think one thing is to come up with a, a sort of standard set of Linked uh, themes to mm-hmm. examine in each case, and that would happen to some extent in in any book, but in the textbook, it's it's uh, more deliberate. So I wanted to make sure that I covered several key elements in every case, which would include causes, the what actually happened, and it's, it, in some cases, it's interesting that some some quite famous books occasionally kind of leave out the very basics on what happened in the <laughs> case of genocide. So that you can't you can't do that, especially in a in a textbook. And then I also really wanted to make sure to cover the the humans involved, so to look at the different categories of perpetrators, uh, bystanders, and victims. And I also wanted to show the reader that no genocide is is simply all the same, that there's some variations, I wanted to draw attention to some of the regional variations in genocide, that I can only do that with some selected cases. So in a textbook, it's not possible to look at, for example, all regional variation in the Holocaust, but mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure to make clear to readers that there was regional variation in the Holocaust, uh, much as there's some regional variation in the Armenian Genocide. So that, that's, that's the main difference, is making sure to uh, come back to several uh, themes in a very organized fashion and
1: as i was as I was prepping for this, I was kind of running down the menu in my mind of undergraduate textbooks about genocide um and actually, there's surprisingly few, mm-hmm. and those that are kind of standard, Totten or Jones or some of the others are primarily primarily global in nature so mm-hmm. So why did you decide to write a book about genocide specifically in europe
0: well there are, there are two reasons uh, uh, the, 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 the honest reason is that someone suggested it to me. Okay, that, that's how it actually started. Okay, but I could have said no. So once once someone suggested it to me, it did it did make sense that it that it, that the topic was useful. And that genocide is a global topic, but at the same time, the study of genocide began, in particular with reference to uh, European genocide. The unusual number of genocides or acts similar to genocide occurred in 20th century Europe. And those acts of genocide in 20th century Europe had a particular effect on the creation of the Genocide Convention uh, and on genocide studies and on, on genocide law thereafter. So there is some reason to focus on genocide in 20th century Europe in its own right, even if, again, the initial truth is that someone did suggest it to me.
1: Now, there's nothing wrong with doing what people suggest. Um, I, I've never written a, a textbook, although I've written similar kinds of things. Um, I'm wondering what what you learned about genocide from writing this book.
0: I, I actually started going back to a lot of uh, primary sources, which sort of surprised me, because I sort of thought initially that, OK, I'll just write this based on on what I what I know and uh-huh. write up an outline and and just write it. But uh, I went back to a lot of primary sources, and, and only some of those, of course, make their way into the textbook because there are, there are limits on on space. Uh, I think I learned that genocide, and I knew this already, but it became even more clear to me that looking at a whole bunch of cases in quick succession, that genocide blurs the lines between uh, combatants and non-combatants. And that's something that, that we know, but when I looked at several cases in succession, that became uh, even more clear. I also learned, and I knew this as well, but it became even more clear that genocide does not begin from a single cause. And in any particular historiography, there are proponents or exponents of one cause or another. But I think more than ever, we see now that, that most cases of genocide usually arise from multiple causes, and in particular from a combination of, of both some long-term causes and, and short-term radicalization. So I really saw that, that that influence of short-term radicalization in most, if not all, cases. So those are just like a few things that became especially clear looking at a series of case studies in fairly quick succession.
1: And, and so let me flip that, that question around, because you you talk about in the introduction um, the way in which people have, have, and these are my words rather than yours, kind of increasingly used mass violence as a way to to examine world history or European history or regional history rather than the other way around. And reading your introduction, I was I, I, two books came to mind. One of which you cite, one of which you don't, and the one you cite is is Mark Mazauer's book Dark Continent, um, which is a history. For those who haven't read it, it's a, a history of the 20th century in Europe and kind of distinctly defined by a, a vision of Europe as troubled and suffering rather than a an Enlightenment kind of continent um, The other book is Steven Pinker's recent war, book uh, This is a, a pretty sizable book basically arguing that there's been a slow but steady decline in violence in human societies over time And I'm wondering, you know what looking After writing, spent and presumably immersing yourself in the history of genocide in Europe in in for a few years, uh, how you what your kind of balance between those two you strike is? Where do you fall on this continuum?
0: I think that uh, studying genocide should alert us to the possibility that humans can, under some circumstances, or can definitely and have definitely created. Incredible destruction through their own intent and action. Uh, it's true that this has happened. As in general, over the past you know 50 years, the world has become somewhat more peaceful. Right? I mean, it's uh, that the data on, on, on deaths and wars is uh, pretty compelling. But I think that what we also need to realize is that just because we we think one type of destruction is is fading doesn't mean another will uh, disappear. One one question I find really interesting is the question that the philosopher Kwame Anthony Appiah asks, and he Uh wrote a little op-ed which is based partly on a book he wrote, and the op-ed question was, uh, what will future generations condemn us for? And it's kind of a thought experiment. Uh, So we have, just because the Statistically speaking, the number of violent deaths has gone down, which partly is a result of, of you know the end of, of warfare between major European countries, partly is just the result of population growth, right? So if you have a very large India or a very large China, and if which is a giant if in the case of you know India and Pakistan, right? If they're not involved in war, that's a whole lot of people, right, who aren't involved in, uh, in violent conflict, right? So in that case, the statistic may not be telling you that much about life elsewhere. But mm-hmm. suppose and maybe it's true that we are headed in the future towards some age, major some age progress. It would be nice to think so. Uh, at the same time, I think that we still have that capacity to destroy things, and uh, there, in, in, in certainly quite a few areas, that may not just be restricted to genocide. And this so I'm is. Not, I'm not is, so optimistic, actually, in that respect.
1: And and my sense is that's have, having interviewed a variety of people who spend their lives studying this kind of subject. I think that's a common experience or a common reality that that people who write about this face. And I guess that's a that, that leads me to maybe this last content question. Uh, which is prompted by some of my students actually, because I'm teaching a, a an honors course now in the Holocaust through primary readings, and and every uh, periodically through the semester we've had to pause because this is very troubling material, and the, the students are kind of emotionally impacted by this, and they'll look at me and they'll ask me why they're in the class, mm-hmm. and so you've written a textbook that that asks students to immerse. Themselves in this history,
0: why should they? I think people need to confront reality, and that's a big part of uh, reality of history is is what people can do in a in the worst case scenario. I, I do think it's important for them all also learn about you know best case scenarios, right? Learn about you know amazing human artistic achievements, that mm-hmm. scientific achievements, that that's great too. But um, I think it's not just useful, but I think necessary for people to know about worst-case scenarios, uh, because, you know, they may, they're going to live in a world themselves where they will also have the capacity, collectively, to make decisions, which could lead to incredible things, right? Or, you know, most likely will just lead to people muddling along as they normally do, or in some cases could lead to worst-case scenarios, and genocide is certainly one of those worst-case scenarios, and there have been plenty of, of examples of those worst-case scenarios in a fairly short amount of time. Yeah. I mean, all these cases in 20th-century Europe, we're talking about examples that are happening quickly, uh, and, you know, they're not very far removed from the present in terms of, uh, you know, living memory. Well, we've taken a lot of your
1: time, uh, and I'm, I'm very thankful for your willingness to do this. Let me conclude by just a couple quick questions. And, and the first is um, for people interested in going further, rather in the history of, of identity and the remaking of identity or, or, or something else, what's on your top one or two or three books that everybody should read on these subjects?
0: Well, you know, I mean, for identity, the, my, my favorite is, is a classic, really, which isn't directly concerned with genocide, but Benedict Anderson, you know, Imagined mm-hmm. Communities. And it, 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 it's quite old now, but I think it's still quite, quite scintillating and, and, and very well written. Uh, then when it comes to uh, genocide, I mean, I'm actually not sure there's a single, you know, must-read book at this point. Sure. There, there, there are so many. I personally often find the, uh, the memoirs and diaries most fascinating, and sometimes memoirs and diaries that aren't aren't particularly famous, and that may just be because they're, they're they seem fresher. Um, so, but among historians, I mean, I'm reading. A, he's actually coming to Fitchburg, and I'm reading a lot of Tanner Action. So, I mean, he's been an hmm. amazing year uh-huh. of course, in studying the and genocide. In sort of broadening my horizons to think about genocide, I've been very influenced by uh, Donald Blox and Mark Levine. Those are just some some names. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so
1: last, although maybe this isn't even an appropriate question, because two books in, 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 I guess, now a year and a half, I think maybe the right answer to this is you're taking a break. But I want to ask it that way. What What are you working
0: on now? Uh, I have a bunch of ideas. I mean, it, it, is, it is true that I'm, <laughs> I'm not actually writing anything at the moment. Um, <laughs> I'm interested in I – mean, I, going back to my, my past in geology, I've been team-teaching a class with a colleague on climate and history, and that is some, huh. something of a t- departure. So I'm interested in, in that topic and, and looking at the interplay between uh, human action, human history, and uh, climate. In terms of genocide, I have a couple of things I'm curious about. One is what I would see as a, some, something of a double standard in assessing perpetrators based on their their nationality. And I, I don't think that historical research always uh, analyzes perpetrators by the same standard. So that that's mm. one thing I'm curious about. And the second thing, which is a little bit provocative, is I've become very interested in this term, never again. And in what it really means, and I'm increasingly hmm. concerned that it and it's being used in a in a kind of banal fashion. So mm-hmm. I, I did a little little TEDx talk on that, and so those are just a few things that I'm that I'm interested in.
1: Well, I hope when uh, when you're done with your break, your well-deserved break, and uh, when you finish the books, you'll uh, think about coming on the show again. But I wanted to say thank you again. Uh, it's been wonderful, and I very much appreciate the time. Thank you very much for speaking with me. You've been listening to an interview with Ben Lieberman, author of two new books. The first, titled Remaking Identities, God, Nation, and Race in World History, is published by Roman and Littlefield. The second, titled The Holocaust and Genocides in Europe, is published by Bloomsbury Press. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the new